Welcome to On The Ledge Podcast. I am your host, Jane Perone. Cut me and I bleed sap. Yes, this is the show about houseplants where we can all share our darkest secrets, whether that is quite how much of your paycheck you spent on houseplants last month. Or what happens to your heart rate when you see that reverse variegated Hindu rope hoya on Instagram? In this episode, I talk to the wonderful human being that is Tyler Thrasher. He's an artist, he's a scientist, he's a plant breeder, and he's the creator of plant podcast Greenhouse Rants. Tyler joins me for a wide-ranging chat about everything from why the internet is the wrong place to go for plant information, racism in the plant community, breeding new hybrid succulents, and why following your passions is really the way to go if you want a happy and fulfilled life. Thanks to the ever-growing band of patrons who support On The Ledge with a monthly donation. This week, Sally, Rachel, Nikki and Elsie all became legends and Kay became a superfan. So Kay, your exclusive postcard will be winging its way to you shortly. Thanks to Olivier and Abjens in the US and Sarah Jotho and Frucht Pastelen in Sweden for leaving reviews for On The Ledge. You all said lovely things that put a smile on my face. And leaving a review for On The Ledge is one of the free and easy ways you can support the show. There's been a bit of a lull on the meet the listener front, so if you haven't put yourself forward to tell everyone your answers to those five tricky questions, camel gutation, I think that's the hardest one, then do drop a line to onthelegepodcast.gmail.com and my assistant Kelly will be in touch with the very simple details of how to get involved. Right now, without any further ado, it's time for my interview with Tyler Thrasher. It's a long one, so get yourself a pot of Earl Grey or a nice long dog walk to go on or whatever is your podcast accompaniment of choice because you've got a treat in store. And do go and check out the show notes where you can see a picture of Crassula Thrasula, the wonderfully named hybrid Crassula succulent that Tyler talks about, and also links to all of Tyler's stuff, including his Grow a Damn Plant Journal and those incredible crystallized insects. Intrigued? Well, let's get cracking and hear more from this fascinating guy. My name is Tyler Thrasher. Uh, I am a scientist, artist, grower, uh, overall, I don't know, madman um, here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's really nice to have you on the show, Tyler. I've been following you for some time and dipping into your podcast. The events of the past few weeks have somewhat crystallized in my mind the fact that my show needs to be as diverse as possible. And so it prompted me to reach out to you and ask you to come on on the ledge. What's it like being black in the realm of botany slash horticulture slash plants at this very moment? Oh, man. What are you seeing that's pleasing you, that's displeasing you in the, the world of of plants? Oh, man. You know, I've never really been asked that. Um I mean, I would say my experience as a grower and with plants is different here in Oklahoma than it would be for, say, somebody on the West Coast. Uh, one of the biggest things that comes to mind is I grow and collect uh, cacti and succulents. And one of the interesting observations I had made is that a lot of people that grow and collect cacti and succulents can by and large be very conservative. And historically, down here in the South and in the Midwest, um, 
those are always very, very touchy demographics for me to be around as a black American. Um, I have encountered handfuls of, of racist comments and remarks. Um, plenty of older white growers that are surprised to see a black man coming up to their greenhouse. Um, I've even been told, oh man, there's not a whole lot of black people who grow cacti and succulents and those kinds of like seemingly, seemingly innocent offhand remarks, um, can make one, you know, very nervous when you're alone in a greenhouse with somebody and you're just wondering what are they going to say next? Um, so that's been interesting is navigating, you know, driving, you know, an hour and a half out into the country to someone's greenhouse and then really hoping you don't see a Confederate flag or a big Trump sticker, which I have. And there have been plenty of times where I've been very uncomfortable for the sake of looking at really cool plants, which is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. But um uh, other than that, I mean, there's a lot of diversity happening right now. Plant communities are popping up online here and there. Uh, and so the, there seems to be a lot of space uh, online and in these forums and online groups in the plant community for people of color and for black growers. And also, on the other hand, I've seen a lot of racist remarks from people online because they have that Internet screen. And there are a handful of growers that... I've had to cut out of my circle or add to like, you know, a, a list, like a blacklist um, of like people like do not, these people are racist. Um, they've, you know, stuff like that. So it, it, it's a little bit of give and take. And as a black grower, I've had to learn how to navigate that and know who to buy my plants from and who to support and vice versa. It's been interesting here because, you know, as a as a white person um, in the UK, navigating my response to what's happened has been interesting. Um, my take has always been that, I mean, and I found myself quoting um, the Meghan Markle of the royal family the other day, you know, the, the only bad thing to say is to say nothing. And I think that's what I've been getting from... A lot of people on social media who into plants and gardens mm. saying, oh, I can't say anything because I don't want to say something <laughs> wrong and I don't really have a view and all of those kind of very cop-out <laughs> type phrases as if yes. there was some <laughs> kind of magic wall that, you know, to, as if they, don't, <laughs> they just want to talk about plants and therefore they are able to just remain silent on this issue and... That has kind of frustrated me, but at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, I I found it difficult to negotiate. So I do sympathise with them to some extent, but at the same time, it's not hard to say Black Lives Matter. That's not a hard thing to say. Black Lives Matter. That's mm-hmm. not a, a that's not a stretch. Like we surely we all understand enough and can see enough of what's been happening. I mean, it's been so interesting here in the UK as well, because we've had protests here and we've had a statue of a slave trader that was uh, in Bristol that was was basically taken down. I mean, amazing things. So there's been some really positive um, responses. I mean, I guess again, some people would say that's vandalism. But as somebody pointed out, who lived in <laughs> who lived in Bristol the day after, they posted a picture of themselves st- sitting in the sunshine near to this where this statue was, saying, "As you can see, Bristol has now descended into a lawless state of chaos." It's like, <laughs> no, everything's just exactly the same, and actually, it's yeah. better because we no longer have this statue. So it's um, it's a very yeah. interesting time. I guess one of the things that you've done is release this t-shirt, raise uh, raise some heck t-shirt, which has raised tons of money. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, so I've always been sort of very vocal about some of this stuff. And like you had mentioned earlier uh, about people choosing willful ignorance, you know, that is sort of a magical wall where people can just kind of pretend like some issues don't exist because realistically those issues don't exist for certain people. And I have also found myself really frustrated with the plant community and its decisive silence and its overwhelming ability to pretend like human lives aren't all that important. Um, and, and lean more into plants where I'm thinking, how did you get, like, how did you get those plants? And, and, 
I, 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 that's something I want to touch further on. Um, but the shirt came about because it was a, it was a design I had made during the 2016 election, uh, to try to like get people excited about voting, about giving a damn, you know, we go through life trying to avoid big, hard, scary topics. And those are the ones that we should be tackling together. And so I've, I've always made these efforts to try to get people energized about important things and about changing the world. And, and even during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, I brought the shirt back. And then during the, the protests for George Floyd, I was asked to bring the shirt back again. So I did not really thinking much was going to happen. You know, a lot of people who followed me already had the shirt. So I thought I'm, I'll probably sell enough to raise maybe five grand for a good cause. Um, and I was really excited about that. And I listed the shirts and within three hours I had raised $25,000. Um, and by the next day I had raised 35 and by the, by the time three days had passed, we had raised $75,000, um, to donate to various charities and causes on both a national level and on a more local level. And that blew my mind. Like I just, I was not expecting that. Uh, and I'm still trying to like, <laughs> I'm still trying to have like a come down from the overwhelming joy and the feelings and anxiety of all of that happening in about three days. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It's a real achievement. And I mean, like, it's heartwarming that there are that many people out there who were, you know, sympathetic to, to the cause and wanted to support you, which is absolutely brilliant. And I guess that's the wonderful thing about the plant community. I mean, it's been interesting seeing the reaction, how the reaction has been differentiated in my community, uh, on the ledge community. I have had not a single bit of negativity about what I've said in last week's episode about Black Lives Matter, but I've seen other podcasts try to tackle this subject and seen comments from their listeners saying, oh, just stick to gardening. We don't want to hear about that. So I've been kind of proud of my listeners that actually they've taken this on board and said, yeah, of course, this is something we're concerned about. So that's that's made me really happy. Tell me a bit about the various aspects to your polymath of you're a polymath i think we can describe you as that um there's so many different things that we can talk about here we can talk about hybridizing succulents we can talk about your incredible crystalline i don't know what i can't don't even know how to explain these crystal crystallized insects <laughs> we can talk about some amazing aroids that i've seen in your in your instagram there was just mm -hmm. how did this all start where did this all come from was there a childhood filled with plants uh, and science or it comes from a different a few different places i i think as a kid as most kids often are i was very curious and i was enthralled with the world um my dad was a gardener a nursery owner landscaper and growing up he had this nursery called river bend nurseries and it was a wholesale nursery where he would sell geraniums and flowers and landscape plants and i would oftentimes spend my weekends at the nursery, uh, really with like completely free rain. I remember running through these giant 60 foot greenhouses, just exploring and hiding in the flowers and trying to catch lizards and, and looking at something new every weekend while my dad would like be driving around in the golf cart, picking up flowers to load onto trucks. And my dad brought all that home. We had a beautiful, beautiful garden. Uh, we had home and garden tours. I remember as a kid looking out my bedroom window one morning and seeing lines of people go up and down the block waiting to walk through my dad's garden. And we'd be making cookies and lemonade to bring out to the people waiting in line. And so I was surrounded by plants and my dad had a deep, like deep love for plants. Uh, and so I always carried that with me. And of course, you know, in high school, you go through the school system where they want to like, you know, take the cheese grater and chop off as much of your inspiration and passion as possible. I thought that, uh, where I felt like I was being told to pick one thing or two things at most rather than all the things I'm in love with. And, and so I had to learn to like, fight that and get back the things that I loved as a child, which included plants. Um, even there's even a point in my childhood where I lived in a greenhouse. My dad had 
opened up a nursery that had this little back office area uh, behind one of the large geranium houses where there was like a little bed. And there were oftentimes I would wake up at home three in the morning and my dad would put me in the car still sleepy and I would go continue my rest at the greenhouse only to wake up and water geraniums. And then that weekend I would sleep there uh, at the nursery. So there was a part of my life where I lived in a greenhouse and um, plants have seemed to have been there my whole life, just surrounding me. Uh, so that's where the plants come from. Uh, some of my work that you had mentioned, like the crystallized pieces, I, yeah, I synthesize and grow crystals on insects and, and different exoskeletons and organic matter. And that comes from a deep love for chemistry. And I'm also a caver. So I spend a lot of time crawling through caves and exploring caverns and stuff like that. And uh, my appreciation for geology and mineralogy gets pulled into my artistic practices as well. Um, But that all does seem to kind of stem from a, a childhood knack of being curious and and being so in love with the natural world, which I, I just feel like so many people lose over time, you know. Yeah, so true. There's, it's interesting. I, I love the fact that you uh, you got to sleep in the greenhouse. I mean, who's can say that isn't their dream? I mean, that's an, who listens to this yeah. podcast. That's a that's a wonderful smell. And I, I, the smell of uh, geraniums is very very evocative for me. I'm sure it is for you if you grew up. Uh, surrounded by them that smell takes me right back to my childhood of of that very distinctive smells <laughs> very very evocative for me so i can just uh, picture picture you in there with all, among all the plants and what a wonderful exposure to plants at an early age i guess lots of people miss out on that and therefore they come to plants later in life when they get their own place and this whole explosion of interest in houseplants that's happened over the last few years has kind of caught them up and they've got into it. Have you found yourself sort of talking to friends who've perhaps in the past been a bit dismissive of your plant collection in the last few years and and now they're sort of they're kind of suddenly interested where they weren't before because houseplants are suddenly in vogue? Personally no. Uh, Well I guess I've, I've had friends that like know of my like my obsession with plants and over time yes as plants have gotten more popular i've had friends ask me so many questions i have like i'm their go-to plant guy they'll just text me a question um in the middle of the day or a series of questions and i am finding people around me who didn't who hadn't seemingly cared about plants all of a sudden start um, wanting to fill their homes with with plants and stuff like that. Um, so it has been interesting. I, you know, it, we're watching plants like blow up on Instagram and online and Pinterest. Um, and I'm watching that happen in the circles around me, uh, as well. And I, <laughs> every time we'd have friends come over, or have a dinner party, you know, my one rule is, is that I pull them into the greenhouse to show them like one really cool plant or something that's flowering in the greenhouse or something like that. I mean, this leads us on to talking about your podcast, Greenhouse Rants, which is refreshing in that you just unload (laughs) all of your... (laughs) You know, among lots of other things, uh, you you unload your frustration with the... I'm going to call it, because this is a non-sweary podcast, I'm going to call it the BS of the houseplant world or the plant (laughs) world more generally. I mean, like, I'm of of this soft and fluffy illusion that, like, the the there's we're all we're all friends and this is all lovely and everyone's nice to each other clearly having listened to greenhouse rants that's not true (laughs) is there anything you want to like rant about on on the ledge let's let's have a bit can you give us a a sample rant about something that's annoying you in the plant world right now oh there's a list oh good god well for one okay i gotta i gotta flip off the curse switch because i'll get going (laughs) One of, the, one of the first freaking things that got me really frustrated with the plant community was the fact that I learned really quick that not everyone who grows plants are good at heart. There are what I have coined plant vultures, people who understand the value of a plant based off of its market appeal, and they'll use that to prey on unsuspecting plant people. One of the beautiful things about plants is that they don't adhere to our rules entirely, and they mutate and evolve and change, sometimes spontaneously 
simultaneously. And some of those changes have been very, very vital to making a, hortic- a plant of horticultural significance. Um, those sport mutations that we see, you know, those things have gone into making landscaping plants or making some of the most beautiful hostas that you see in gardens and so on and so on. There has been an ongoing history with finding the freaks and the mutants in a in seemingly normal batch and profiting on that change and that mutation. That sort of behavior and that observation has not gone away. So what you see is a bunch of new plant people coming into this hobby, and then there are people who know what things are worth and what to look out for, and they prey on the unsuspecting people. And one of my first frustrations was when I had this Monstera that I've been growing that randomly mutated, and I posted it online, and I didn't really know much about it, and someone messaged me immediately and said, that is very, very, very valuable. You need to be very careful. And I was like, what? It's just a plant. Like... I'm, what's, there's no problem here. And they told me, no, you'll see. And sure enough, sure enough, I got dozens of messages from people saying, hey, that thing looks sick. You should send it to me. Or, yeah, your plant's not that special. I would buy a cutting from you for like maybe 30 bucks if you'd like. And um, when I started getting these messages from a bunch of very popular, very well-known plant people telling me, A, it's not that special, but B, I want it, I started to make a map of like, certain behavior in the plant community. And sure enough, um, what I had was very, very special and some people knew it and they wanted to get it from me. And, um, and I made the mistake of sending a plant to somebody who uh, completely ripped me off. Um, I've had people try to uh, come into my shop and, and come in here and try to like steal cuttings and stuff like this. And so I, I, I quickly learned that not everyone in the plant community has the best of intentions. And some of those are here. Some of them are here strictly to profit on this crazy, crazy, stupid plant trend or uh plant, you know, really plant trends. They're, they're trying to profit off of it at the expense of people who are just here to grow and learn and have fun. And so that's something I'm seeing happen all the time. I'll see somebody share some really cool mutation they found at uh, their local nursery, and I'll see the same plant people who are very notorious for scamming other people in the community. I'll see them pop up in little in little uh, <laughs> little gaggles, and they'll all try to get the plant from them. And you see you see this happen back and forth. And there's really no shortage, right? I mean, like. Like you see people who are trying to get the most money they can out of the least plant that's available. So you see people like selling like rooted nodes from plants uh, for two to three hundred dollars. <laughs> and that that frustrated me into a term that I call wet, wet sticks where people are just selling, yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that. Whereas before this, before the trends, people were growing and selling full plants with leaves and roots, like a whole plant, not just a piece of a plant for $300. More from Tyler coming up, but now let's hear about our other show sponsor this week. This week's On The Ledge is supported by BiteAway, the chemical-free device to treat your insect bites. I have to admit I was a bit sceptical about the BiteAway. This product uses nothing more than a short blast of heat to take the itch and the swelling out of bites from bees, horseflies, mosquitoes and other insects. But I got bitten twice on the hand quite soon after my bite away arrived in the post. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. So I placed the tip of the device, which is about the size of a chunky marker pen, onto the bites. And less than a minute after I'd used it, the itch was gone and the swelling was already going down. How does it work? Well, the Bite Away uses a short spell of concentrated heat, 51 centigrades for three seconds to be precise. It does feel a little weird and uncomfortable, but as soon as that three seconds is up, I started to feel better. My husband had an old bite on his leg, so I used the Bite Away on him too, and it worked for him as well. The Bite Away is compact enough to stick in your first aid kit when traveling, and it works on a couple of AA batteries, which give enough power for 300 applications. BiteAway costs $26.99 and is available from Amazon. Find out more at mybiteaway.co.uk. 
And now back to Tyler. And I wanted to know if the world of cacti and succulents is quite as pressured as the world of aroids. I would say before the aeroids blew up, the thing that was really in were cacti and succulents. Um, that, I mean, there, there was a huge cacti and succulent boom where every Pinterest board had, you know, a cacophony of, of just tacky succulent projects and DIY stuff and people were all about them. And then there was, there's different sections of cacti and succulents. And if you're in it long enough, you'll know which ones really are popular with different demographics. And so I have growers that grow a lot of caudiciforms, or they grow a lot of adenium. And adenium are really popular in uh, in Japan right now, in Taiwan. And so there are a lot of growers from those areas that travel to the U.S. Um, to like import just hundreds of these plants because they're so ex- insanely expensive and popular over there. Um, the mesomes like conophytum and lithops, uh, those are really popular in Japan. Very, like, very, very popular in Japan and China. And so a lot of those growers will buy them like from Mesa Garden or, or from Stephen Hammer and they'll bring them in and, and they'll pay whatever price they can for some of these. Um, and so that's still there. But one thing that the succulent and cacti community suffers is a beautiful, beautiful habitat in South Africa where all these succulents are endemic to. And that, that habitat is plagued by humans that like to come in and pillage and, um, they, they like to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, poach. Poach. Yes. They like to, they like to pillage and poach. And so you'll see all the time on like some, some different, new source in South Africa. Someone got in to a state or a national park and they took, you know, $5 million worth of conophytum or lithops. And uh, this happens all the time. And there are people on the inside that get paid to let these growers come in and do this. And, um, and that's one thing that the succulent and cacti community is suffering is that. And these are very slow growing plants. So when you poach an entire area, I mean, you, you might as well have written that that little population off as extinct at that point. Um, and that hasn't stopped. Now, I have noticed prices drop because now everyone's moving to houseplants and aeroids. There are succulent people I've bought from for years that are now asking me where they can get wholesale aeroids so they can sell those now too. Um, and so it's moving more in the direction of aeroids in terms of like where the prices are, but I think that's short lived. I think in the next few years, uh, we're going to see it shift to another trend and I'm seeing people in the aeroid community now start posting about some rare quote unquote rare succulents that they're now adding to their collection. Um, and so I am curious to see like, where this yeah, that's so interesting. I, I too, am curious. I mean, I'm, I always advise people not to be driven by, you know, what they see on Instagram, but, but, but by the plants that really they feel passionate about that make their heart race. And I mean, I, I speak as somebody who is probably a bit of an oddity in that the, the plant, one of the plant families that really excites me are the, uh, Gizneriads. <laughs> which are not very popular at all, which are very untrendy. So I'm kind of Mm. hoping that they stay in a way that they stay unpopular because I fear, you know, the same kind of horrible situation where I can't buy a primulina for five bucks. That's actually suddenly got really expensive. It's, it is a double edged sword, the popularity thing, I think. Um, well, the other thing I wanted to go back to say, picking up on your point about terrible succulent projects on Pinterest. Oh my gosh. Can we just, can we just rant about that for a minute? They're so I mean, bad. I know that you've you talk uh, you've talked in, in your podcast about uh, succulent substrates, and it was a very enlightening discussion of that. And interestingly, some of the materials that you mentioned are not ones that I'm familiar with. I think you talked about turface, which I've never heard of before, so I had to Google that one. But it's interesting. It's so mm-hmm. interesting how much poor information there is out there about succulents oh my gosh i mean if i see another succulent in a glass terrarium or another succulent that's kind of in a uh, just in a pot with no drainage and just i mean and okay yes theoretically if you are very experienced with succulents you could probably make that thrive but these aren't being bought or done by people who have vast vast experience with succulents are they um there's it's 
It's. I just feel sad no. for all the millions of succulents that, that turn to mush as a result of these Pinterest things. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of really bad info out there. And when I first started out growing cacti and succulents, that was a hard thing for me is I ended up killing a lot of plants and I like to look for the things most people ignore. So I found myself trying to find plants that weren't widely available, which meant they were really hard to track down. And I ended up, I remember my first frustration with the info out there. I bought a Crashula plegmatoides, which is this beautiful gray leafed Crashula that has these round sort of spherical structures it's a very enticing plant and i got one for a really good price but i ended up killing it about three weeks later and i was devastated because i had to go in like a bidding war for this plant it was a beautiful plant and i felt like i let down not only myself but the plant and the grower and it really devastated me and so from there on i thought screw it like there's no good info out there I got to make the good info. I have to do this through trial and error. And I ended up finding other growers that do not use the internet for succulent information. Um, they have books, they have um, documents from other growers that don't really use the internet because some of the best info comes from the older growers who aren't interested in putting their how to, sh- their how to stuff on Pinterest. <laughs> and so that is truth. That is absolute truth. Yeah. I, yeah. I, the, it's really, I guess it's it is really tempting just to think that the answer lot every the answer to everything lies on the internet, but with plants it really doesn't, does no. it? There's so much good information in books that you think I've never seen this online before. This information just isn't there. Yeah. Um, but I guess. <laughs> So how do you go about tracking down the information that you needed in order to make these? Was it just like sheer detective work of finding the right growers and talking to them? Yeah, well, so that part's tricky. Where one of the biggest strides I had to make was okay, nothing on nothing on the internet in terms of like I love to grow conophytum and mesums. Anyone who follows me knows that is a one of my plants. I just like you said, it just makes your heart race and. Uh, I had to start, there's no good info on the internet. They're all mislabeled. No one knows what they're talking about, but there are a few people who really know what they're talking about and they're not on the internet. They're in their greenhouses and maybe they put out a book or two or they have like journals. Uh, and I had to find those people and it started for me, it started with uh, hitting up my locals, cacti and succulent dealers uh, like here in Oklahoma and going and hanging out with them and getting to know them. And, uh, uh, I have some good friends, Bill and Terry, um, and they're older growers. And so they've done this for decades. And I would spend hours in the greenhouse with them learning about the plants they love. And then they would learn about the plants I love. And what then would happen is they would say, oh, if you're into mesums, you should look at this person or you should go to this person's greenhouse. They've been doing it for 60 years or something like that. And I made a list of people who aren't on the Internet. They just had these big greenhouses out in the mesas or out in California or out in the desert. And um, they've been doing it for so long that they have just greenhouses overflowing with plants. And so I got resources and I would call them. Some of them would be like, look, I don't do, I don't have visitors anymore. It's just me. Or I would have someone say, you know what? I haven't had a visitor in a very long time and you sound really young. Yeah, no, this could be really fun. So I go out and visit with a grower who hasn't had young plant people come in their greenhouse. It's just all of their fellow older growers. And so what ends up happening is they share their info with me because they want to see this this knowledge and this plant experience get passed down and so i did have that advantage as a younger more excited grower is people were really almost eager to share what they know and share their plants with me because they haven't had a grower my age come through their greenhouse you know in a decade or so and so it was just like a more of a person like in-person experience anytime i would travel for my art or travel for a show i'd tell my wife look while we're in, say, Denver or while we're in Albuquerque, I'm going to find a local grower and I'm going to go hang out with them. That was just a ritual that I had done was that I always try to find a local grower or a local nursery and get to know the owner and then ask, hey, can I come hang out and talk to you and pick your brain? And I that's every time I travel, even when we went to Amsterdam a few years ago, like I same thing. I was like, I always got to find the local grower and pick their brain and see what crazy plants they have and what crazy things they know. Um, and so I just spent less time on the Internet and more time talking to actual people. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, that is a real. That is a very, very sound piece of advice for anyone who wants to get it. Obviously, mm-hmm. aside from listening to both of our podcasts, um, <laughs> it is a great thing to get away from the internet and just see what you can learn from from books and from, as you say, from people. That there is such a fountain of information. And having said that. There's this cutthroat world out there. Lots of these growers are very generous at dispensing that knowledge to, as you say, to somebody who's who shows an interest. So that is that is an amazing opportunity. And let's use that because I certainly see here in the UK with the um, older members of the, the British Cactus and Succulent uh, Society where somebody dies and then they've got this huge collection and they then need to the family can't look doesn't want to look after it and they end up having to give it away and there's always you know a struggle to find homes for these plants and i'm thinking oh that's crazy because you know yeah. cacti and succulents are really in but actually finding you know the, the mechanics of finding a home for a large collection is is not easy so yeah it's um it's it's a great resource and uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful to have these societies that can pass on that information, and I know I've benefited from from visiting different people. You guys have the Mesm Study Group over there, and that was that's also a really great resource for anyone who's into cacti and succulents or mesms. Um, I believe they're based in the UK. I think yeah, they are, and they have like a quarterly publication they do, and they, in that they release info on habitat plants and habitat and new cultivars and hybrids that are being worked on um so that's always been a really fun resource and i've been trying to get seeds from them for a while and they stopped shipping internationally um, um yeah uh, but that's another case <laughs> the seed schemes are a brilliant way of, of getting getting new new plants and, and i love growing stuff from from seed and we've we have an annual sow along which is really good so i'm always encouraging people to give that a try you are I, i'm i want to talk about crassula thrashula though <laughs> because <laughs> you're, you're breeding i mean like i just love the fact you called it that tell us about about breeding succulents and, and what that adds to your own personal understanding and excitement of of this group of plants yeah well you know, I mean, I think it's a known, I think it's a disputed fact, but I, it's a fact that the universe operates on random, random beautiful accidents and plants and hybridizing is no exception to that rule. You know, the way I've always seen it is I like to tinker with nature. If you follow any of my art or any of my projects, they do usually fall along the lines of, Hey, nature's given us these tools that can be used as artistic mediums. And I view plants that way. That plants, if you can view plants like you could a, you know, a palette with a bunch of brushes and paints, um, they're there for us to experiment with. That is the beauty of humans is that we can step back every now and then and look at the world and tinker with it if we like. Um, and, and so when I had a bunch of plants, you know, flowering in my greenhouse for the first time i i freaked out and i would hit up i'd go online there's nothing online about cross-pollinating plants or making hybrids um and there's nothing reliable so i would again talk to the older growers that would say oh yeah you know about 20 years ago i i crossed these two and i made you know this and and i would learn how they did it i would go to mesa garden where you'd have these pots full of paint brushes and i would say what's up with the paint brushes and they go oh that's to transfer pollen from one flower to the next and i was like oh whoa um so i brought that into the greenhouse and i just started experimenting i would have two lithops flower or i'd have two crashula flower and i'd go back and forth and cross pollinate them wait about six months and then a seed pod would develop and i would cross my fingers, I would crush the seed pod and sow the seeds and see what happens. And crashula and succulents grow so slow that you never know if you made a true hybrid until about three years. Um, it takes about three years to be able to discern any uh, distinct traits. And so, uh, you know, I've been doing this for about four or five years now. And that's one of the things that I, I started this early on and now I have plants that are distinct enough that I'm like, oh wow, that actually kind of worked. And one of them was the Crashula Thrashula. <laughs> um, 
and this is a hybrid I made between a Crashula, uh, a Crashula Ascensus and a Crashula Deceptor. And I didn't know if it would work. And I didn't know until this year when I could look at individual traits and go, wow, this is different. Yeah, this is not like either parent. And I went online to some of the Crashula experts and they said, yep, you've made a hybrid. Um, and, <laughs> and I wanted to name it originally, I wanted to name it Crashula Nova after my son, but you can't use the Latin language um, when you name uh, a hybridized plant. And so they said, you can't use Nova. Uh, and so out of frustration, I just named it Crashula Thrashula um, as a joke. And I loved it. I fell in love. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I'd I'd forgotten that that you can't use. That's an interesting one about the breeding. You can't use the Latin. That I'd I'd forgotten that. But yeah, that must be. I mean, it, still, the world is your oyster. There's many um, ways that you can express yourself through uh, the name of your of your hybrids. I think so. You, that's great. And what other qualities of Crassula that Thrashula that are that excite you? Well, actually, it was. Um, uh, it, it propagates very easily, and this is something I had talked about in the podcast, that um, one of the beauties to growing to growing plants from seed is that you will end up with plants that are very strong in your, uh, in your zone or in your habitat. And so uh, this, these Crashula thrashula that had survived over the last three years, you know, about 80% of them died, but there were three that survived, and that usually is indicates that they they are very happy in Oklahoma. And so that means when you go to cut them and propagate them, they root very quickly um, because genetically they are thriving in the area. And so I've been propagating it and it propagates very nicely and it grows quickly. um, And it's it was about to flower and then we had a heat wave come through and half of the plant got burned. So the flower got disintegrated, which is a little bit of a bummer. But... um, I don't know what the flower looks like yet, but some of my favorite traits, uh, when this plant gets enough sun, it puts on this soft velvety red hue on the undersides of the leaves. Uh, and this plant uh, has um, these tiny little fuzzy hairs, and that helps it give it this sort of shimmering velvety look that I, I really enjoy. That came from the Crashula ascensus, which was the seed parent, the seed parent for the hybrid well it sounds like great fun this is not something i've ever tried but you're making me want to try because it just sounds so cool so basically you've got to have the two the two flowers from the two parent plants and then be crossing pollen from one to the other using a paintbrush and then presumably isolating that flower so it doesn't get pollinated by anything else if there might be other pollinators around or does it is that not an issue if you're inside your greenhouse um, so my greenhouse, I do have pollinators come in every now and then. Um, fortunately, for something like the Crashula flower, they're tiny. So a paintbrush doesn't work with a Crashula flower. I actually use my beard hairs. Um, you, <laughs> uh, I just, yeah, I just, or you can use a cat whisker, but I'll pluck off a beard hair and you just stick it in the flower. And there aren't any pollinators in Oklahoma that I've come across that are interested in the crash of the flower. So I rarely get any cross-contamination. However, with lithops and some, like some of the conophytum, their flowers are much larger. So anything like a gust of wind can blow pollen across the bench or something like that. So you do have to be careful about cross-contamination. And if you are going to make a hybrid, there are lots of rules. There are a handful of rules when you go when it comes to making hybrids and naming them. One of the big ones is take a lot of notes and be very, very specific about what you're crossing because you want to be you want to be accurate. You don't want to have a hybrid and not know what one of the parents is. You have to know for even any society to take it seriously. You have to be able to show full documentation um, and note-taking of that hybrid and stuff like that. And so there's a lot that goes into it if you want a hybrid to be registered as a new cultivar or be registered as a new plant. And there's a lot that you have to do on your end to make sure you have the info you need. Yeah, I can imagine. And as a terrible record keeper, record keeper, that sort of <laughs> strikes fear into my heart. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how could I actually manage to do that? Uh, t- talking of record keeping, that brings us neatly on, though, to your journal, which I have to say, 
I have tried many, many different systems of record keeping. As I say, I'm a terrible record keeper. And I think this is what drove you to create your own, your very own publication devoted to recording plants. Tell us about how that came about and and what your master plan was. So again, it all comes back to the fact that the internet sucks and everyone just spews whatever info they have. And (laughs) I got so tired of wading through that that I thought, the only way I'm going to learn is to screw up myself and take notes. And so I had, you know, I had empty sketchbooks and this and that. And it was all just way too vague for me. And I thought, man, if there's just like a neat way to organize all the different aspects of growing a plant, because it's not just look at it and write stuff down. There are a lot of different things that go into growing a plant, such as seasonal observations and, and what fertilizers do you use in your watering regimen and just so much. And I thought there's got to be a journal out there that breaks all this up. And I couldn't find it. Uh, and every grower I talked to said, yeah, this is, you know, growers that are 70 years old that have said, we have wanted something like this, but no one's making it. No one's making something that is made by a grower for growers. And so I, I, I have this habit where if there's a void or a vacuum somewhere, it has to be filled. And so I thought I'll make the journal. And so that, that's what I sought out to do was to make a journal that breaks up all the different observations you have while growing a plant. So you can write them down separately because you need to be critical about those things separately. And then when they all come together on that same page, it will paint a scientific image of the plant. You'll have a better understanding because you looked at all these different things separately. And plus I, I was done with killing plants. I need something to track down all my failures and successes. And I thought there's got to be other growers out there that could use something like this. And even for novice growers that, you know, they kill their plants regularly and they message me saying, Tyler, I don't have a green thumb. I have a black thumb. And my whole thing is, is there's no such thing as a green thumb or a black thumb. The only difference is there are people who pay attention and those who don't. And you have to train yourself to pay attention and look at your plants critically so that they can be healthier. And then you can sort of sit back and relax once you have a better understanding of your plant. And that's hopefully what this journal will do. As people fill out different prompts about a specific plant, they can, um, at the end of the day, look at it and go, oh my God, it all makes sense. Like this plant now makes a lot of sense and they can stop worrying about it because they now have a better understanding of the plant as a whole. Um, and there's even things in the journal like tips from me on how to deal with pests and soil additives and fertilizer. And I really just wanted it to be a pocket guide for your collection. So you don't have to go onto Pinterest and dig through acres of false information the information you have is right here in your hands, and that's the most valuable information when it comes to your own collection. Um, so I, I just really wanted to make a personal database for people and their plants. I'm nodding so hard here that my head's about to fall off. I'm <laughs> so with you on this idea that, you know, people's crazy idea that they're either, they've either got the knack or they haven't. And as you say, no, it's just but you're either, you're either paying attention or you're not. That's so true. And, uh, yeah, it's, it really is. And it does, it should spur me on to take, to take better, better records because I know that when I do and when I look back at things and think, Oh yeah, that plant's doubled in size since, uh, I repotted it last year. It actually really does help me to understand what's mm-hmm. working and what's not working. Have you crowdfunded, um, it, the publication, its publication? Yeah, so I did the Kickstarter before the pandemic like took off here in the, the United States, and uh, my goal was about fifteen thousand, and we ended up raising forty five thousand on the journals. And uh, this is something I've had a lot of people ask: like, was that Kickstarter? Was that my only chance to get the journal? And this is something I plan on having in my inventory. Um, for the foreseeable future. And so um, I'm going to be carrying this thing and changing it and adapting it even after the Kickstarter uh, as people buy them and use them and they tell me, oh, this worked great. Oh, this didn't work that great. Or, oh, this was wonderful. Like I'm going to be taking a lot of notes from other people's note takings to try to design, to tweak this thing over the next few years. But um, I, I'm going to always have this thing on my shop and uh, have it regularly stocked because I think it's something that's very important for growers. But yeah, we kickstarted it and it blew up. It, it was funded in like 30 minutes or something like that. Um, wow. I, it was, yeah, yeah. Um, I, or maybe it was like f- 
funded in like two hours. I can't remember. It just blew up and it, and it, <laughs> it was terrifying. That must be very gratifying though, that you've got such a, a following that people are prepared mm-hmm. to invest in what you're doing. Yeah, it's crazy. I even still, like I've been doing this for five years and I've been uh, fortunate enough to have a following that supports my work and, I've just been able to make art and experiment full time for five years. And there, it, 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 sometimes it freaks me out. And then sometimes it like really warms my heart to know that there are, there's a huge swath of people out there that are just saying, look, you just keep doing you and we'll support you. Um, and that's just such a weird life. I never thought that I would have that opportunity. And even when it comes to my plants and knowing there's so many people out there that, um, count on me for plant info or count on me to um, be a voice for different stuff. Uh, I I have found myself in a position that I don't think 20 year old me or 18 year old me thought was possible. And I guess that's a good message. Like, you know, if you could speak to yourself at 20, you know, you might want to say to yourself, you know, this is going to be okay. You don't have to necessarily, and I keep saying this to my children, you know, you don't have to necessarily think of, in the future in terms of a really traditional set definition of a career like a career can be any number of different things it doesn't have to go down traditional lines and involve you sitting at a desk nine to five <laughs> in an office anymore I mean both yeah. my children have <laughs> both my children have got really into snakes during lockdown and reptiles and nice. they both decided they want to be snake breeders right now so <laughs> Nice. I'm like, okay, the message has definitely just got home. Um, yeah. so it's obviously working, but it's, it, I think it's really interesting. I think there's a whole generation of people who've got into plants who are now sort of seeing alternative futures for themselves where they open a plant shop or they, you know, become open a nursery or do all different kinds of things connected with plants that they never dreamed that they could do because perhaps no one ever told them that they could. Yeah. Well, and, Another thing that's interesting too is like, you know, there's so many things I'm fascinated by and I try to tell people, you don't, you don't have to pick one or two things. That's not how life works. This idea of picking a career, that idea is so much younger than the rest of humanity. So much more of the hum- human timeline existed without that necessity than did and i think we forget that we think that there's this new rule for humans that you got to pick one thing and like you said sit at a desk and do it over and over and over that's not how this works there's a generation of people um older than me that are so perpetually miserable because they thought that's how life was meant to be lived um and i won't i won't settle for that i forcibly will not settle for that. So I'm, I'm personally too always telling people, you don't have to pick one thing. You can have a basket of fascinations and ideas and projects and make them work. Just do your best and keep falling in love with the world and, and these ideas that you've been collecting. You don't have to dump out your basket and keep one really boring, quote unquote, profitable thing. That's not how life was meant to be lived. Well, that's, that is a brilliant, uh, a brilliant thing to emphasize in this podcast. We've, I mean, you know, we try to, we don't necessarily always keep completely on topic of houseplants, but I think that's a really good message for every listener, whether they're, you know, 15, as I know some of my listeners are, or whether they're, you know, 55 or 85, because there's always, there's always more scope to do more interesting things. Uh, and what, what next for you? What other projects have you got on the go? Have you got any more plants that you're breeding or any more? cool i mean we haven't even talked about synthesizing <laughs> opals which i i uh i we could have another whole hour on that but i'm not gonna, <laughs> i'm not gonna keep you too long but what, what what's next for you man i i have i just have such a huge list of projects um one of my big focuses right now it's it's a long-term goal really hoping it's not too long uh I want to open up a conservatory. I, I want a, a conservatory that makes plants accessible. I want to take some of these endangered plants or some of these, these plants I find so fascinating and I want a big glass home for them and I want it open to the public. But, um, my wife and I also want to double it as like a venue 
So, you know, some, we can still make some money, but then during most of the month, it's just this big open public space. Um, that's a big project for me. And after I did this t-shirt drop and we raised that much money, um, we started to coin this term called the do good gang, which is a group of people that, I mean, really it's just people who believe in using art um, and science and creativity to do good where they can, both on a national and local level. And so we're I'm working on a series of shirts that both a raises money for good causes and then B raises money for a future conservatory that I get to open where people can come and listen to plant lectures or just walk around and look at really cool plants and maybe catch me like hunched over a bench with a beard hair cross pollinating, um, or something like that. Uh, so that's one of my big projects, uh, is really to keep doing good and to keep using art and science as a vessel for, for, for doing good and then open this conservatory. Um, and there's so many, uh, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm even doing that. Um, That's just the top of the pile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have a Dungeons and Dragons podcast that I'm doing. I love storytelling. Uh, and I, so I, I like to tell stories through Dungeons and Dragons. So that's an ongoing project. Um, I'm writing a book about a fictional botanist who comes across old alchemical uh, manuscripts on plants. And she ventures out into the world for the first time trying to explore and find and discover these plants. Um, so I, I, there's so many projects. Wow, that sounds amazing. Well, Dungeons and Dragons. My daughter got a Dungeons and Dragons starter kit for her birthday, um, which she hasn't been able to use because lockdown. Um, <laughs> so I think she, uh, I, I need, to, I need to be listening to that Dungeons and Dragons podcast because I have to admit, beyond like 80s movies, I know nothing about Dungeons and Dragons, but I feel like I should. So. <laughs> I think we're gonna have my daughter and I are gonna have to go on a Dungeons and Dragons kind of uh, journey together. And, um, uh, I will warn you, the podcast is riddled with foul language. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I, I have to say, uh, despite the fact that this podcast is uh, is swear free, um, unfortunately, my children have both have inherited um, both my <laughs> husband and I's terrible sweariness, so they are just absolutely foul mouthed as well. <laughs> nice. so it doesn't really they won't be bothered by that whatsoever my okay, daughter's completely okay. unfazed by any level of swearing it's absolutely oh my God. fine um, but you know I, I always kind of my belief is you know context you've got to know when it's okay to drop the f-bomb like not oh, in yeah. front of your head teacher but you know maybe okay in front of your friends etc but um yes well that sounds really interesting um i wanted just to ask you about the collision slash intersection between art and science and this is something that i think people put into put into boxes much like they do with food growing versus recipes and cooking you know this false division between art and science which is obviously something you straddle yeah what's that all about why are people who are artists so so afraid of science and why are scientists so afraid of artists or is that am i getting that wrong no, um, I don't think you are. I think we, we divide and break things up because some other human told us to. That's it. I think if left to our own devices, I think we will find ourselves blending the world together the way it is naturally. Now, I think that when it comes to art, traditionally speaking, artists, uh, they, it's more spur of the moment. There's a lot of creativity and spontaneity that can sometimes come with creating. Oftentimes you'll hear artists are working on a piece of art and they don't even really know where the idea came from or they kind of check out and then the piece is done. There's a lot of sort of um, spontaneity and chaos behind art making, whereas science, the, the idea of spontaneity and entropy exists within the things you're studying, but a scientist should not be spontaneous and entropic. They should be orderly and sterile and very rigid um, and and analytical and very analytic. So the two would seemingly not go well together. You know, you wouldn't want an artist coming in and and trying to find, you know, create the vaccine for, you know, say a virus or you wouldn't want the artist coming in and performing like a very intense surgery. But then also maybe perhaps people don't want to go through a gallery made specifically in 
entirely by scientists that consists of like scholarly journals framed up on a wall. Um, so people want to treat them separately, but they both have a space in the middle, whereas science can use a bit of creativity. I think science could benefit from some spontaneous thinking and wild ideas and that sort of spontaneous energy that artists have. I think science could benefit from that, and I think art could benefit from this keen analytical observation that scientists have, where some some really cool ideas and very well-executed ideas can come from the sort of brain that can stop and look at the world very, very... Um, uh, you know, analytical. So I think there's a mixture in, in between. And that's oftentimes my goal is to how, how do I take the keen observation of a scientist and the spontaneous uh, entropy and energy of an artist and put them together to make a mixture of the two? That's fascinating. It's exciting to see what you're getting up to, Tyler. And what is your, you know, given that suddenly in a way that it hasn't been before, the whole Black Lives Matter movement has been catapulted forward into areas that it perhaps never went before. What What's your hope for, for that particular movement and for, for the plant world in general in terms of better representation? I guess this ties into what we were saying earlier about, you know, on the internet... There's lots of positive stuff in social media communities of houseplant lovers. There's lots of people of colour who are doing amazing things. Perhaps off the internet, things are a bit less rosy. I'm, I'm rambling now, but I, I just want you to sort of put on your, get out your crystal ball and t- tell me where you think this is all going. Are, are we, are we, are we, do we have hope that things are going to be better? Yes, entirely. I, I... I, I can't help but, but be an optimist, even though I'm, I, I dwell and, and swim through the existential crises. Um, I have hope. I have hope for a lot of reasons. You know, for instance, my dad is, um, my dad is a middle-aged white man who likes to tout time and time again, the world's getting worse. Look at everything. It's falling apart. And for me, I'm thinking, Hey, dad, um, your black son is married to a white woman and I'm not hanging from a tree right now. So things are definitely not getting worse. They're getting better. The world isn't getting worse. It's becoming more apparent to a lot of people who previously wanted to sleep through it. Um, that's the only difference. There are a lot of people who are now coming to the realization that, oh my God, uh, the world's not getting worse. It's just really bad for some people. And it's pretty nifty for me if I want it to be. Um, I have hope because there are a lot of people. I went to a BLM protest and there were as many white people as there were black people. There were many, there were as many white Americans as there were black Americans. And I sat here and I thought, this is not the image I saw in the civil rights movements, um, in my history textbooks. Uh, what I saw were black Americans fighting for their lives, being hosed down by police and having German shepherds um, unleashed on them with not a single, with very few white people to be seen. And now I'm seeing everybody. There were, there were, you know, like just everybody. There, there was middle-aged white moms handing out water bottles to protesters and stuff. It was a beautiful coming together of humans. I have hope because a lot of people will no longer accept living in a world full of oppression where only a small percentage benefit while everyone else uh, is oppressed and tormented and killed. Um, and we're more vocal about this. Um, th- I think things are changing because the number one rule to the universe is you adapt or you die. You have to change. And that that's, th- that's th- true through and through to every fiber and structure of humanity. The times you've seen civilizations collapse is because they didn't adapt. And right now you see a bunch of humans that are very pro-science that are saying, look, we've been proven that if we don't change and adapt, structures will collapse, populations will die off. Uh, it's how it works here on planet Earth. And so it's an optimistic reality, I think, you got to change. And that change is going to benefit everybody. And there are a lot of white people who see this and go, yes, these things do not afflict me. They don't affect me directly. But if I stand up with my fellow humans and we make a world that's better for them, overall, the entire community will benefit. And I think there's a lot of people who are realizing that and they can no longer deny things like systemic racism or, or, um, they can't deny the realities of life for some people that don't look like them. Um, 
And from that, I think there's going to be a lot of change. Uh, I am hoping at the end of this, um, at the end of this pandemic, we're more pro-science. Maybe next time we'll listen to the scientists. Maybe next time we'll listen to the environmentalists. Or maybe next time we'll listen to the professionals uh, and not mock them or think this is some big conspiracy. Uh, maybe next time we'll listen when a black American says, this is wrong, because I think a lot of people are ready to listen now. I am on the side of that oppression and that hate and that historical mountain of brutality. And I still maintain hope personally. Well, that has that has given me hope as well. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that because sometimes it can be, you know, and I, I say this with uh, no hint of irony as a white person, but I felt overwhelmed this week with uh, with this. So, you know, then you think, oh, yeah, this is how people of colour have been feeling for hundreds of years. So get over <laughs> yourself. And you're right. And, you know, when I speak to my children, you know, who are 10 and 13, that gives me real hope because they are the most open-minded accepting people that I know and the most wonderfully mm-hmm. you know informed about all these different issues that I was not informed about at their age so I guess that's the future is you know uh, the young people who are going to uh, move forward and embrace lots of new realities which will be positive so mm-hmm. yeah well that is that's a good point to end on sorry I'm 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 wibbling now I'm just no, getting no. more <laughs> into the idea of of a, of a bright new future but this is what happens when somebody talks to you, Tyler, because you've got so many different things going on. Like you're taking us in so many amazing directions. Um, it's It's been really nice to speak to you. And, uh, you know, I found it really inspiring. And I'm sure lots of my listeners have as well. Just tell us before you go, if anyone hasn't come across you before uh, before this interview, where's the best place to kind of get Tyler Central and to look at your journal and to look at all your cool projects? Um, I would probably say my Instagram, um, Tyler Thrasher Art or TylerThrasher.com. Um, I, I post a lot of my projects and stuff up there, but my Instagram is where I'm most active for sure. Awesome. And, you know, you have Patreon and all, all different ways of people supporting you. So I yeah. really hope that some of my listeners will get on board with that because um, it's, as you say, it's great to be able to to offer that support. And um, I know that I benefit from that myself from listeners um, supporting my Patreon. So it's a it's a powerful thing and it's, it's great. Well, Tyler, thank yeah, you very thank much you. for your time and talking to me today. Thank you to Tyler Thrasher for being such a wonderful guest this week. I'll be back next Friday. In the meantime, be kind to your plants, but most of all, be kind to yourself and to other people. Bye. music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops and Endeavour by Jazar. The ad music was the tracks Dill Pickles and Whistling Rufus by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See my website for details at janeperone.com. 